Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to uh, Conversations on Care, a Facebook talk show bringing together our healthcare partners, our clients, and caregivers to help families better understand and cope with their aging parents with chronic care needs. My name is Julie Collada, and I'm the founder and CEO of Open Arms Solutions. And Open Arms is a home care company serving the Chicagoland area, focused on inspired home care solutions for seniors with chronic conditions such as dementia, Parkinson's, and other movement disorders. It is truly our mission to help our families through this journey and to know that their loved one is living their very best life possible. If you like these dialogues and you find them helpful, please give us a like and a share so this information can get out to more people who could benefit from it. Uh, with me today is uh, Dr. Jennifer Wilson-Bianati, who is the owner and, clini and, and clinical neuropsychologist at Compassionate Neuropsychology. And Jennifer, this is your second uh, time with us on the show. And thank you so much for coming back and, and sharing your knowledge with everybody. Thanks for having me, Julie. My pleasure. Um, so our topic today is not all dementias are the same. How to identify and best support your loved one uh, with dementia. And I'd like to read Dr. Benati's uh, background. Um, she's got a wonderful background for this important work. Uh, she is a licensed clinical psychologist and a neuropsychologist specializing in the assessment of older adults. After completing her internship in community mental health in New York's Hudson Valley, she began working with the, the senior population in her postdoctoral work. She is experienced with those age 50 plus with increased anxiety or depression or a decline in functional or cognitive abilities. She is the owner and sole practitioner of Compassionate Neuropsychology, LLC, and evaluates patients at nursing, rehab, and retirement facilities and private residences. She's also on staff at Linden Oaks Behavioral Hospital in Naperville. Welcome again. Thank you. What inspired you to start Compassionate Neuropsychology? Well, you know, I, I'd like to say that, that there was something in my family, a family member or something that inspired me, but it wasn't that at all. I actually tripped into it. Um, my philosophy when I was doing my uh, clinical training and postdoc work was to take in as much different experience as I could. And that way I could better assess what I would like to do or what my strengths are. And so uh, in my postdoc work, I wasn't particularly interested in working with older folks, but it presented itself. And so I did, and uh, I found that I had um, a, a really good rapport with older people and that I had um, a particular skill for uh, assessing and doing testing instead of therapy. Most people go into psychology thinking they want to do therapy, and I did as well. But it turned out that that wasn't what I wanted to do, that I wanted to do assessments, and I ended up wanting to work with 
older folks and assess the neurocognitive disorders. And after I got training at a neuropsychology practice, uh, I went out on my own. Good for you. Um, it's uh, it's always that uh, you and I were talking about this a little bit before we went live. Uh, it's it's a, it's a bit of a leap to start your own company. So it takes uh, uh, it takes a lot of courage to do it. And you've obviously been doing it for how long have you had your practice? I start. It was uh, six years ago. I started it. Uh, good for you. Yep. Yep. It's been very rewarding. Yeah. Really, yeah. really wonderful. Yeah. That's it's, and it's so needed. Um, it really is. So our topic is, you know, talking about dementia and the different kinds of dementia. And I find that when I talk to people, um, thank you for putting that up there, Alex. It's actually not all dementias are the same. How to identify and best support your loved one with dementia. Dementia is really an umbrella term, right? It really is an umbrella term. I, I get the question a lot. Uh, what's the difference between Alzheimer's and uh, dementia? And it's, they're not. Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. And like you said, Julie, the umbrella term is dementia. So dementia is, uh, separate from the specific definition that applies to neuropsychology. Um, dementia means that you have a neurocognitive disorder that indicates there is a change from your previous level of functioning and it impacts your ability to, to do your everyday tasks, your uh, activities of daily living and your instrumental activities of daily living. They're impacted. And so you have to take steps to compensate for that loss. Okay, well, thank you for that definition. I, I hadn't heard it quite that way, but it makes a lot of sense. It's a very practical de definition. Yeah. Um, so then the, the natural question after that is what, uh, what causes dementia? Oh, boy. That's a very good question. There are so many causes. So if you, if you think about what we just talked about, what dementia is, there are all kinds of things that can cause a change in neurocognitive functioning. Right. So the most common one that 70% of all dementias is Alzheimer's. Okay. So there are different causes for that. That Alzheimer's has a strong genetic basis. So we do see that running in families. However, people can develop it that don't necessarily have a strong genetic base. So we call those lifestyle uh, factors that contribute to Alzheimer's dementia. Usually it's a combination of a genetic basis for it and then lifestyle. So if we're talking about lifestyle, we're talking about things like heavy alcohol use, smoking, obstructive sleep apnea, high red meat intake, uh, poor exercise. Those kinds of things you hear from your doctor all the time, right? And uh, obesity, diabetes, okay? Mm -hmm. We hear these from the, and they're serious when they say that. They do contribute. Also, uh, mood disorders can be risk factors, such as depression and anxiety. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. We have a lot of things that contribute to Alzheimer's. And then other than that, we have things like a traumatic head injury in a, a, an accident. We see that in young men, 18 to 24. They haven't developed the frontal lobe. There's a lot of testosterone. They get in bar fights. They get in accidents. They incur it a head injury, and boom, they have dementia. Okay, yes, that word is applied to young men when they have a brain injury. Uh, also, um, 
if you have, uh, if your brain is deprived of oxygen, I had a patient who fainted in the hot tub and she mm. was deprived of oxygen for uh, 10 minutes and she ended up with and it was in, a, in an unusual pattern that only affected her memory. Um, toxins can cause dementia. Uh, substance abuse, we see that when there's been a lifelong history of heavy alcohol use or drug abuse, they can have permanent dementia from that. Uh, pesticides can cause that in uh, Parkinson's sufferers. Mm. Uh, we're finding that out. So there are a lot of causes of dementia. Thank you for explaining all of those. Um, so can you describe some of the more common types of dementia? You mentioned Alzheimer's and 70% mm -hmm. of all dementias are Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you just take a little time here and what are the, you know, what are the most common? I mean, I recently read that there are over 50 kinds of dementia, right? <laughs> at, least, like, at, at least. At least, yeah. <laughs> So we don't have time to talk about all 50. Um, <laughs> no, but, but we want to talk about the most common ones. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the most common. All right. Let's talk about that. So Alzheimer's, as I said, comprises about 70%. Right. Now, we got a little wrinkle in the cloth here. So in 2019, researchers discovered a new type of dementia that we had previously been diagnosing as Alzheimer's. And it's an Alzheimer's lookalike, and it is the acronym is LATE, L-A-T-E. And it stands for limbic predominant age-related TDP43 encephalopathy. Basically what it is, is it is a dementia that develops in folks in their late 80s and into their 90s. And it is an Alzheimer's lookalike, but it is not the same accumulation of the plaques and tangles. Hmm. It's an accumulation of a protein that precludes effective functioning, but it is different in that it doesn't always have the same behavioral aspects of it. And um, it doesn't have the, the, the same um, problems in terms of caring for the patient. Can you describe so, that one more time? I sure will. But tell me, tell me the name one more time, because truly this is, I, I don't know that I've, I've read about this or heard about this. So yeah, this no, it, it, it's just, it's just, I saw a figure the other day, and I think it is accurate. You know what, Dr. Panani? Yes. When you pull away, it's, yeah. the sound cuts out, so if you can okay. try to, thank you. Because sure. what you're saying is so important, we don't want to miss a word. Sure. Um, so I saw something the other day uh, that they're saying that they think about 40% of dementias uh, are this late um, type of dementia. So that stands for limbic predominant, age-related, TDP43, that's the protein, encephalopathy. Hmm. It occurs in folks in their late 80s and through their 90s. And these are people, and I've seen these, I've seen these over the years and uh, that I've been doing this. And it is like Alzheimer's, but it doesn't have the same kind of disorientation in time and space. It doesn't have the same behaviors that go with it, the same kind of paranoia. Uh, it doesn't have the, the same um, uh, 
really troublesome kind of things that, that the wandering. Um, and that, that's still up in the air, though. This is this is I'm speaking from excuse me, from my experience. So I had a, a, a series of people that I saw yesterday at a facility, and there were a couple of them that were in their 80s and they clearly had to me Alzheimer's based on my experience, what I know about Alzheimer's and that they were disoriented in time and then poor, very, very poor delayed memory uh, and poor object naming. These are the cardinal signs of Alzheimer's. And then I saw this woman, she's 96, okay? She looked wonderful. Um, and she says, I know I've got really bad memory. Now, usually people with Alzheimer's, they don't know it. They don't believe it, okay? So like, oh, there's nothing wrong with my memory. Well. Um, and so she says, I, you know, I, I know I have really bad memory, but, you know, what are you going to do? I thought, that's true. So we did some testing. It, it, that memory was no longer than, than two minutes. Uh, but she didn't do a lot of repetition. Huh. And she was still um, generally oriented in time. There was no paranoia. And I thought, this is a classic example of that late dementia. Huh. Okay. She wasn't going to wander. And the upshot was for her um, care planning, we didn't feel the need to move her to memory care because she wasn't leaving the apartment. She wasn't paranoid. She wasn't wandering. She was oriented to herself fully. And her daughter was very involved. And so we decided, we with the facility decided that she can stay exactly where she is. So that's a perfect example of why really uh, assessing what exactly. kind of dementia it is. That's a great example. Exactly. Um, so what other kinds of dementia are very prevalent? Okay, so the, the second or third most common is vascular dementia. We see this in people with chronic strokes. Okay, so it's in, in testing, there is a different profile. That stated, there's only about 10% of all dementias that are pure vascular. Oh, okay. that's interesting to statistics I, that I had not here. My mother was was uh, diagnosed with a, a mixed dementia, vascular disease, and Alzheimer's. That's But, but I never heard that statistic that only 10%. That's uh, right. That's interesting. Most people that develop vascular dementia, it will cascade into an Alzheimer's mixed process. I see that all the time. Um, I would call that combination more prevalent than probably the second most uh, after Alzheimer's. Um, very, very common. If I see a medical profile that says uh, history of TIAs, yeah. COPD, diabetes, mm -hmm. hypothyroidism, which by the way is a new factor they're discovering is contributing, okay? Um, atrial fibrillation, uh, pacemaker. I'm like, okay, I know where this is going. And then I, I go through the test and then yeah, yeah, yeah. looking for uh, the stages and behaviors, that kind of thing. So the diff, okay, so we talked about the top three different kinds. And so then what are some of the other more prevalent on the list? Parkinson's, yeah. So there's Parkinson's, just Parkinson's disease. Right, right, right. And they're largely intact cognitively. That being stated, 
Uh, I think that everybody with Parkinson's is as it gets to the later stages, they have dementia. Okay, it's just less so. And then there's Parkinson's with dementia. And that is a different cognitive profile in testing than the others. Okay, so there most of the time when I assess someone uh, with Parkinson's dementia, I already know they have Parkinson's. They already have the diagnosis. There have been a handful of times that I've actually done the testing, observed the patient, and put in the report that uh, the doctor should uh, make an assessment for Parkinson's because I'm of the opinion that there probably is some. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, then there's, um, you know, often very, there's, there's something called frontal temporal dementia, right? There is. Now what we, what we look for there is that occurs in people in their fifties and sixties. Okay. And it is, it has a genetic basis. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's always genetic. We don't know exactly. But so, I mean, sometimes, you know, people say, well, it's nowhere in our family. But they're finding that um, there is some relationship with ALS and frontal temporal dementia. Oh, wow. So if I ask the question, is there any uh, frontal temporal dementia in your family? Well, no, not at all. Anyone with the ALS? So that's the next question to ask. Uh, so it is a devastating disease that um, time from first signs to end of life is generally seven to ten years and what it appears as is different based on where it starts in the frontal lobe mm. all right so there are some versions of it that start in the language center then there's others that is the, the most common starts in the behavior part of our brain. In most people, that's in the right hemisphere, the right frontal lobe. And people that never before, who were, say, for example, sexually disinhibited, um, or uh, are now eating everything in sight, or they're uh, shopping like a mad person, spending money. When you start seeing behaviors like that in someone that's about 50, 60 years old, uh, 65, you've got to start asking that question. And the first thing you want to do is get an MRI. Because it's, a, you know, that's the thing that I think we've, I've learned anyway throughout the years. You know, when my mom was first diagnosed, it was such a mystery. Had no idea what, why it was happening and really didn't understand, well, so much about dementia. And I think that's where most people are. And, I agree. Um, I think that, you know, the, um, once people and I went we went through this with my mother-in-law too and I was trying to help my husband and the family better understand what was going on with their mom um, is that once people start to understand that there's different parts of the brain and the brain is really mm -hmm. starting to break down yeah and depending on where it breaks down uh, will mm -hmm. determine you know what the behavior is that we we tend That's to call right. it and so you know when my husband walked in and his mom said, who are you? Oh. Which is always incredibly devastating. Oh, right? oh God, yes. And, yes. you know, I tried to help him understand that, well, hey, this is, you know, the hippocampus is part of the brain that, and this is the part of the brain that's just not working, Mark. And it's yeah. hard. 
it's hard to hear it, but I think at least from my personal experience and when I talk to people, and I don't know if you found, found this too, it's easier for family members to, to deal with it if they understand more concretely that, you know, it's kind of like breaking your leg. It's, it's something's broken. Yes. You know, it is. And it's just more, it gets, it's more concrete, I think. Here's a, here's a little tip. And I think this is really important because people with Alzheimer's revert back in time in their own memory. Mark should have presented a picture of himself as a child mm. and said, who is this mom? Mm. Oh, that's my son, Mark. Mm. And then he says, that's me, mom. Yeah, that's so a great, that's, a, it, a great suggestion. Yeah, yeah, that's a very helpful suggestion. Um, we have some viewer questions, so I want to make sure we get to those. Okay. Uh, and this is a great one. The first one is, is there a test for this new late form of dementia? Is there a test? Yeah, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I'm going to speculate um, that we do have tests now where we can read, um, look for a certain protein in spinal fluid to diagnose Alzheimer's, okay? I'm going to go out on a limb and say, we probably can do the same thing for this late thing. Uh, that would be a, a, a laboratory test. As far as neuropsychological testing, it would be the same. I would render the same, go through the same process to diagnose that as I would any other um, dementia. And it would be based on just an opinion based on the testing results. And it's certainly, um, if the person would have to be at least in their mid 80s and older for that to apply. Okay, thank you. That, uh, thank you for whoever asked that question. Uh, another viewer question. This is, this is a good one. How can we best prepare our loved ones with dementia to plan for a time when they may be less able to that where that senior is less able to engage in decision making oh that's an excellent question that's a whole other seminar but what it is is when they're able to anybody 18 and older should have all those documents in place because at any time any one of us can become incapacitated and need someone that we trust to make decisions for us and you're talking about power of attorneys so power, power of attorney of Powers right. of attorney. That's right. right. And that's what you do. And so you're going to need to corral your folks or your spouse or whomever to get these documents in place. It is so important that those wishes be known ahead of time, because when they get to a point where none of this is making sense to them, you have an ethical obligation to follow through on those things that they said they wanted even when they get mean and angry and all that kind of stuff, which is a result of the dementia, you need to follow through on those things for them. Yeah. And I will tell you from personal experience, because uh, unfortunately I, I, I didn't know you at that time. So no one, <laughs> and no one, no one advised us on that. And then, you know, uh, it was too late. You know, uh, you know, we were, we weren't able to uh, really get a good answer. Right, so my mom wasn't able to tell us what she wanted and what was important to her. And that's why I'm so passionate about that topic that you just described. 
You know, yeah. nobody wants to have that uncomfortable conversation. Um, no, they don't, but it's really important. Um, and, and I could say, and this is a whole other seminar as well about a, an individual's capacity. There are two different kinds of capacities. One is the capacity to make decisions. Most people with dementia don't have that any longer. But many people with dementia have a testamentary capacity, meaning they're able to still say, oh, I want you, Julie, to be my POA. Okay, now testing would help to determine that. And the person cannot be under undue influence from say, uh, you know, another child or, you know, something like that. And so that's part of the evaluation. Do you get involved in those scenarios? Sometimes. Are you brought in as an expert, I would imagine? Sometimes, yes. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. and you know, I think, um, I know for our care coordination team, you know, there are scenarios where, um, you know, we learn that, you know, we just really have to get all the information from a family to really understand what's going on in the dynamics of that family. That's right. Uh, to make, to help the process along to make a good, good decision. Uh, Cause sometimes, you know, we'll have, and I'm sure you've seen this before. We'll have, um, clients that are very insistent that they have the ability to make decision and just all the, without us being experts, all the evidence that we see, that's not necessarily the case. And then you can have siblings that aren't on the same page. And, right. and then that just complicates an incredibly important decision for their loved one. So absolutely. And then, and then who suffers is that, that loved one. And you right. want to say, people stop. We right. need to, Focus on the parent here, right? Or whoever the individual is. Yeah, it, it, and you don't want to be caught in the middle of that. No, you'll never right. win. <laughs> no, it's not. No one wins in those scenarios. No, that's why it's so important right. to have those discussions. That's when right. People have the capacity to really, you know, share what's important to them, and then you can document that. And yeah, and then it doesn't make it any easier when you need to. If you have a senior that's very frustrated and they forget that they said that and they forget that they want you to be the you know, right. power of attorney for health care. But, you know, from personal experience, I will tell you, it is more difficult if you don't know what they want and you're guessing. Yes, it is. If it you is. know what your loved one wants, then I, in right. my my view is you can put up with everything else because you know in your heart that's what they told you. And that's, that's they, right. That that's what that's they right. It, we are we are getting close to being end of end of time, and there's I know there's there's other things that we want to <laughs> cover, and we're not going to be able to cover everything, of course. And I I really love the fact that you referred to that. That's another segment. That's another segment. There's, there's so much to talk about. There's so much. Um, so let's talk about the the if you suspect your loved one has dementia. Oh, what do you yeah. What's what's the next step? You know. It, it, I know with, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. You get a neuropsych evaluation. That's what you, because you need to know what you're looking at, how far along it is, what the particular profile is, what to expect. Um, you, you just need that information. Otherwise, you're just stumbling in the dark. So you, so you can certainly call someone like yourself. Right. Right. A compassionate neuropsychology. So for anyone who's Listening in, uh, Dr. Banani's information is, uh, I, I believe, being displayed right now. Uh, yeah, 
I, I do want to mention just very briefly, just so people understand, Medicare Part B covers 80% and a supplemental policy covers the rest. Great. Okay. That's great news. Yeah. That's all, thank you for saying that. That's always important to, to share that information. Do, do people in general, should people in general start with their primary care? Or no, in many cases, so. people go directly to a, a neuropsychologist? No, no. I, I think consultation with the, the primary care physician is an appropriate thing to do. He or she may refer to a neurologist. Uh, they may, you know, simultaneously refer for a neuropsych eval. Many doctors have their own preferred neuropsychologist they send to. Um, yeah, I think it's best to start with the doctor and keep the doctor in on it throughout. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you, you talked about all sorts of causes, potential causes right. for dementia. And then right. I would imagine you collaborate quite a bit with the primary care we physician. Collaborate. And, the, and the, the rule of thumb is you want to eliminate any medical issues, okay? Before you start going after a, a dementia, get, get, you know, a UTI can cause delirium, you know, and all kinds of other things. So you, you look at the medical things first, and that's why I take such a thorough uh, inventory of the medical history. Yeah, that's so important. You know, it's always a... Uh... Uh, you know, there are, we've been talking about some non-reversible dementias today, right? right Alzheimer's right. and Parkinson's and uh, vascular dementia, but there are reversible dementias. There and, are. And those are always so uh, exciting when you, you know, you, you identify something that potentially, if, if medically addressed, you could bring back strong cognition. And, well, that's uh, right. And one of the things that occurs, and I know we, we're running out here, but one of the things that occurs in older folks is depression. And that can uh, that can appear as pseudo-dementia. And once the dementia or the depression is treated, yes. they come back. Yes. Yeah. And you mentioned UTIs. UTIs, you know, a big thing. I never thought I would be, you know, so happy to hear someone has a UTI. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> but uh, in, in this field, um, that, that that can be great news, right? Because that absolutely antibiotics. Because it's just a UTI. Because it's just a UTI, right? Right. Exactly right. Well, a pleasure again. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I'm sure this was very helpful to um, all who tuned in. Great. Thank you for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you. Bye bye now. Bye.